0: All right, we have a handout that's going around that is going to review what we've been covering with the letters of Jesus Christ to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, chapters two and three. But before we look at the handout, I have a question for you to set the stage for our time in God's word today. What does it mean to be successful? What does it mean to be wealthy, to be rich? My kids have been asking me what I want for Christmas, and I'm having a hard time coming up with things. Seems like if I want something, I just go get it, and I have everything that I could want, and so it's hard to know what to get somebody like that. And I imagine that a lot of you are in a similar position. If somebody asks you what you want for Christmas, you think, well, I want peace in my family, I want uh, spiritual growth in our loved ones, I want Christ to come back. There are things that we want, things that we need, but they're not necessarily the things that you go to the store and buy. Most of us have what we want in that regard. So this morning we're going to be taking a look in Revelation chapter 3 and the last of the seven letters to the church in Laodicea, a church that was wealthy in this world, that was successful, that had everything that they could want, much like the American church, but we find out that that's not really what it means to be wealthy, that's not really what it means to be rich and to be successful, and that appearances can be deceiving. And that it's easy for us who have much to become spiritually complacent and to be comfortable with our situation in this world, in this life, instead of recognizing how tenuous everything is that we have in this life and where our true treasure is supposed to lie. Do not be deceived by the deceitfulness of riches. Your insurance company, your retirement plan, your bank account, your home, all of the goods that you have accumulated over the years. There's no security found in these things. And that's a message that comes to us not only in Revelation chapter 3, but throughout all of Scripture. And so we have a lot of Scripture to look forward to this morning as we look into the last church, the church at Laodicea, we find out that this is a church where faith, hope and love, the three great cardinal virtues that Jesus Christ has been looking for in his churches, have all gone missing. The church in Laodicea, while by all outward appearances doing well, is actually doing miserably. And we find that the harshest words are reserved for this last church in the circuit as the postal route goes around, and each messenger carries a copy of the book of Revelation to the seven churches. We come around to Laodicea. And before we read the text, I want you to take a look at the handout that I gave you, which reviews what we've been covering here. The seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. You see on the map, there's a road that travels around to all seven of those churches, John, living on the Isle of Patmos, somewhere right around here, off the map, ascends it by the messengers, starting with Ephesus and then going around to Laodicea. And as we take a look here at the chart I've been showing you, it's basically a simplified version of what I handed out for you, where you can see that each church is receiving praise and blame. Each church is receiving commendation and condemnation, And the three virtues that summarize each praise and each blame are faith, hope, and love. Now, you'll notice that we have two different shades of faith here, a darker blue and a lighter blue. And I've done that also on your handout. The darker blue almost looks like black on the handout, but it's supposed to be a dark blue. And there, the dark blue faithfulness, as you see at the church at Ephesus, is that they were able to protect the flock against false teachers, that they'd called out false apostles. They had rejected the works of the Nicolaitans who were teaching Christians to do things against God's will. And so they had a faithfulness in their doctrine and practice against the internal attacks that Satan tries to undermine the church by sending in false teaching and getting us to follow in living out that false teaching. The church in Smyrna is faithful in another way, not that they weren't faithful in this way, they're not blamed for it, but Christ highlights their faithfulness in the stance that they had against the attacks that come from the outside. So Satan tries to undermine the church from within through false teaching, and he tries to intimidate the church from without through persecution. And the church at Smyrna and the church at Pergamum were both standing strong against Persecution and were willing to suffer and even lay down their lives for their testimony for Jesus Christ. So when we're thinking about what does Christ look for in a church, the first thing is faith, faithfulness, faithfulness doctrinally, faithfulness practically, faithfulness being able to suffer for our Lord Jesus Christ and for the truth that He has brought to the world. But that's not all He's looking for. He's also looking for love. And the church at Thyatira is commended for the fact that they were increasing in their deeds of love. You see that on the handout. Greater works than at first. And love is not measured by profession of love. Love is measured by deeds of love. When people are going through marital problems, they might say how much they love the other person. They might tell other people, I, I've done so much to love this person. But if the deeds are not there, then that is a mere empty profession. And so Christ looks at the deeds of love and he sees the church in Thyatira was increasing in their deeds of love. Now this is the opposite problem in Ephesus. Ephesus was decreasing in their works of love and Thyatira also had the opposite weakness of the strength of Ephesus, that they were not standing strong against false teachers. And so you see that these two are often difficult to maintain, both of those at the same time in a church increasing in deeds of love, while at the same time being faithful to the Lord. And then, not only is God looking for faith and love, but he's also looking for hope, the third great cardinal virtue. Sardis was a church without hope. Philadelphia was the church of good hope. And Laodicea, sadly, is the church that is not commended for anything, like the church at Sardis, and who is missing all vital elements of Christian life. They're missing faith, hope, and love but they don't even know it. So let's take a look then at Revelation chapter three. Read the text together. You follow along in your Bibles as I read it out loud, starting in verse 14. "'To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, "'The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, "'the beginning of God's creation. "'I know your works. "'You are neither cold nor hot.' and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May we have an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the churches today. Some difficult words, some hard words here from the Lord Jesus Christ to the church at Laodicea. Here are the ruins of Laodicea. We have an Ephesus gate up here in the corner. You see the remnants of a Roman road. You see part of an aqueduct here. And then uh, I think this was the amphitheater that was there in Laodicea. The city is gone, and there's no city there currently. Laodicea has become infamous in church history. That what may have had, the church that may have had a good reputation in the first century. Because of this message of rebuke from the Lord Jesus Christ that has been inscripturated, now throughout church history, whenever anyone talks about a Laodicean church or the church at Laodicea, you think of a church that is lukewarm, a church that is self-satisfied and self-deceived, a church that is lacking in spiritual riches and spiritual vision, a church that is pitiable and poor and wretched. This church has forever been stamped by the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in a way that was quite contrary to what most people would have thought about the church at the time. Things are often not as they appear to be. And it's not human evaluation that matters. It's God's evaluation. It's the words of the Lord Jesus Christ that will forever stamp you and your reputation for the ages of the ages to come. What does it matter if people think that you are a wonderful Christian now if when you stand before Christ he says you are a worthless useless servant? It's his evaluation that matters, not the people who are around you. And how foolish we are to live for image that we present before people instead of living for reality before the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, not only can the Lord Jesus Christ forever stamp a church with shame, but he can also take away the shame and create honor for our people who were dishonored. Think about how the parable of the Good Samaritan has forever changed the associations that we have with the word Samaritan. The Samaritans who were hated, the Samaritans who were outcasts, half-breeds, and yet one parable from the Lord Jesus Christ has forever changed how we view that word. And so one word from the Lord Jesus Christ has forever changed how we view Laodicea. Very powerful are the words of Jesus Christ. Now, this church was in a city that was very prosperous. It was in the Lycus River Valley, a commercial center. They had banking, they had textiles, they had medicine. They were in a tri-city area that included Colossae and Laodicea and Hierapolis. Colossae has a letter written to it, although it was the smallest of these three cities. Laodicea only has this letter in the New Testament, although they are mentioned in the letter to the church at Ephesus, and it was the leading city of these three, the most wealthy, the most prosperous. In fact, there had been an earthquake in the city of Laodicea that had done a lot of damage, a lot of destruction in AD sixty. And the Roman emperor offered to help give Roman funds to rebuild the city, much like we do in America today. If a city has a disaster, a natural disaster, then the federal government will give aid to help rebuild. Well, the city of Laodicea was so wealthy and so proud, they said, no thank you, we can rebuild without any federal aid, so to speak. So that gives you some idea of of the wealth of this city and the pride that they had in their self-sufficiency. And sadly, the church that was in this city took on that same characteristic. They also became proud, self-satisfied, and we see that in the words of the Lord Jesus Christ to the church. Christ introduces himself to the church there in verse 14, and similar to all the previous six letters, he introduces himself with words that are taken from chapter 1, with the great revelation of his person and character the Christophany in chapter 1 and other words of introduction. And he reveals himself as the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Let's start with the last one, the beginning of God's creation. This can either mean that he is the one who is the source and the originator of all that God has created, which is a biblical doctrine, the Bible teaches that all things came into being by him, through him. Or this word also has a second meaning, which is related, and that is that he is the ruler over all of God's creation. If you're the source of something, if you're the originator of it, that gives you ownership rights, that gives you rulership rights. And so these ideas were connected, but they are distinct meanings, distinct uses of this Greek word that is translated here as the beginning of God's creation. Now one thing I want to warn you about this verse is what the heretics like to do with this verse. They like to say that the beginning of God's creation means that he is a created being, that he's like the first thing that God created It should be like an Aryan heresy or similar to what the Jehovah's Witnesses teach or even Mormon doctrine. And no, that's not what this word means. And sadly, that's one way that you could take this translation. And that's why I prefer the NIV here, one of the rare cases where I'm going to side with the NIV as opposed to the ESV. And the NIV translates it as the ruler of God's creation. this word is used for ruler many times in the New Testament, mostly in the plural, but sometimes in the singular. And it contains that idea that he is the one who is in charge over all. Of course, he is the one who has created all as the originator of creation. But I think the emphasis here is on his authority. Why do I think the emphasis is on his authority? Well, because look at the promise that comes in verse 21. The message of each letter is connected with the titles of Christ, how he introduces himself, and this letter ends with an emphasis upon his throne. The one who conquers, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So the rulership, the throne of Jesus Christ, is what is in view in the letter, and that's why I think that's the better reading, the better translation of this Greek word archae. The ruler of God's creation. Also, in chapters four and five, immediately after this letter, we're going to see the heavenly throne of God. That's where we'll be on Christmas Eve in Revelation chapter 4, looking at the glory of God's throne in heaven. So those two, together with Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, provides the context also for us to properly interpret the Arche, the ruler of over God's creation. For in chapter one, verse five, Jesus is introduced this way. He's the faithful witness. That sounds familiar. The firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. The ruler of kings on earth. He's the ruler not only of the kings, but over all that God has created. And that is his position on his heavenly throne. So the beginning, you could put a little note there, the ruler of God's creation. Now, the other title that is here, the faithful and true witness, we'll talk about that one later, but let's take a look at the first one, the Amen. What does it mean that Jesus is introducing himself as the Amen? Well, the word Amen, it comes from a Hebrew word, which means to be true, to be sure, to be reliable. And so the fact that he is the Amen corresponds, connects with his faithful and true witness, That everything that he says is true, everything that he says is certain. In fact, in the Old Testament, in Isaiah, God is called the God of Amen, which is translated in Isaiah 65, 16 as the God of truth. And so here, Jesus is the truth. He is the Amen. He is the one whose words are sure and reliable and faithful. He is the faithful and true witness, and we'll have more to say about that. But let's go ahead and take a look at the condemnation of the church in Laodicea. Nothing good to say about this church, only condemnation that Christ has, and he starts off by describing them as lukewarm. Look at verse 15 again. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. That's once he mentions cold and hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. Twice. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, the third time, I will spit you Out of my mouth. Again, imagine yourself in the church at Laodicea in the first century. You are very proud. You are very satisfied. You think that you've got a great church. You've received this letter from John the Apostle in exile, and you've listened to the other churches have their commendation, and God pointed out the things he didn't like. And you're probably sitting there thinking, he went and saved the best for last. I can't wait to hear what the Lord's going to say about our wonderful church. You see, because the bad church doesn't know it's a bad church. And that should get our attention. How do we know whether or not we are a bad church? Because if we think we're a good church, we might be like the church in Laodicea. We might be self-deceived. And so how do we discern? Well, that's what these letters are all about. You have to examine yourself. Do I have the strength of Ephesus? Do I have the weakness of Ephesus? Do I have the strength of Sardis? Uh, They didn't really have one. Do I have the weaknesses of Sardis? Do I have the church at Smyrna? Am I filled with their hope? Are we willing to suffer? Have we proven that we're willing to suffer for Christ? Have we fought against false doctrine? Or are we conforming to the world around us and compromising with the things that the world is putting pressure on us as a church? Read the other seven letters to find out whether or not you are a good church. Here he doesn't give specifics. He just says, you're lukewarm. You're neither cold nor hot. And what does that mean? What does it mean for a church to be lukewarm? been a lot of writing and discussion on this, but I think the traditional interpretation is still the best. To be hot and cold is defined by the New Testament, and to be hot is exemplified for us in the person of Apollos in Acts chapter 18, verse 25. There you read about a man who had been instructed in the way of the Lord and who was fervent in spirit and was therefore speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus. That word fervent is actually the word for hot. He's hot. He's fired up. And we use that same metaphor, we use that same terminology today that they also used in biblical times to describe zeal. Zeal for the Lord is being on fire for the Lord, being hot. Also, another example is in Romans chapter 12 verse 11, where the whole church is exhorted to be not lagging behind in diligence. You know, some of us are extremely good examples of diligence in serving the Lord. Others of us tend to lag behind a little bit. And if you find yourself lagging behind in diligence, you need to step it up. You need to fire up your, your fervor for the Lord and, and get hot, get on fire. You don't have to do my good works. I don't have to do your good works. You don't have to live up to some socially constructed idea of, of what it means to serve the Lord. You gotta read the New Testament, obey the commands that Jesus Christ gives to you, And do the good works that he lays out before you and be hot about it. You know, I came across a note and a letter in my office this week and I saw it and I thought, you know what, I need to write that guy a letter. And so am I going to be hot and fervent and do that good work? Or am I going to put it to the side and say, oh, I'll get to it some other time. So you see, we all have good works to do and you just got to be ready to do the good works. fired up. Be the husband that God wants you to be. Be the father that God wants you to be. Be the light at work that God wants you to be. Be the son or the daughter that God wants you to be, the brother or the sister. Be the church member. Use your spiritual gift. You don't have to do my ministry. Do your ministry. Just be fired up and do what God has in front of you. And if there's things in your life that are crowding out those good works because you enjoy them, get rid of them so that you can do the good works that God has given you to do. That's what it means to be hot. But then what does it mean to be cold? To be cold is exemplified in Matthew chapter 24, verse 12, when Jesus said, during the time of the coming Great Tribulation, lawlessness is going to be increased. And as lawlessness increases and everyone is treating others badly, most people's love is going to grow cold. And so to be cold is to have no love in your heart and in your life. Now, this raises the question, this is why there's been so much written and discussed about lukewarmness here in the church in Laodicea, is the question is, how can cold be better than lukewarm? You know, if hot is good and cold is bad, you'd think lukewarm would be at least better than cold. But Jesus doesn't seem to indicate that. He says that, I would that you were either cold or hot, but because you are lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. And so, How is it that lukewarm is worse than being cold? Well, I think it goes like this. The lukewarm church actually does more damage to the cause of Christ than the cold church. The cold church is the church that is openly heretical, the church that attacks the truth, attacks the Bible, and you know where they stand. They are opposite the Lord Jesus Christ. But the lukewarm church, it pretends to love Christ. It gives an image to the community that it's Christian, while its deeds are not Christian. It's conformed to the world. It's allowed false teaching to make it just like the cultural morality around it. It's no longer looking forward in hope to the second coming of Christ, but it's just settled in and getting their best life now. And that church makes Christ look bad. They misrepresent him to the world. And misrepresenting Christ is repulsive to Christ. It's repugnant to Christ. It's better to be hostile towards Christ and be openly against him than to pretend like you're representing Christ and giving the world a false idea about who Christ is. I think that's the right understanding of why lukewarm is worse than cold in this context. Many churches around us are in this state. They are sickening to the Lord Jesus Christ. They are repugnant. They are repulsive. Yet, he still loves them. As we become more like Christ, we also should be repulsed by what repulses him. We should be sickened by what sickens him. And a church like this is sickening. Yet, it's possible to find something to be repulsive, to find someone to be repulsive, and to still love them. And that's the way we know whether or not we are Christ-like. Are you repulsed by what Christ is repulsed by? And yet, are you able to love the way that Christ is able to love? You see, the church in Ephesus, they were repulsed by churches like this. They got rid of the Nicolaitans. They tested the false apostles. They're like, no, we don't want anything to do with that. But their love was growing cold. And so we must love with the same love that the Lord Jesus Christ has while also hating what the Lord Jesus Christ hates. And he hates this lukewarmness, and we should hate it. But we also need to love those who are lukewarm the way that he loves them. So we have the startling condemnation of the church where Christ tells them the truth about themselves in contrast to their own view. Notice verse 17 again. You say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Now, whether or not they said this out loud is not the point. The point is this is how they perceived themselves. This is their idea of their status as a church. They think that they have prospered. They think that they have everything, but they don't. Turn with me to 1 Timothy 6, verse 10. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. How is it that a church can be so self-deceived? How is it a church can be so unaware of their own spiritual status? How does this happen? Well, the scripture does not hide the fact from us. It, it happens because of the deceitfulness of riches. It is sadly a part of human fallenness that we think when life is hard and things are going bad, it must be because God is angry with me. I must have messed up somewhere. And that's why I'm sick. That's why I lost my job. That's why I'm poor. That's why things are going badly in my family. It's because I did something wrong, and God is punishing me. And then, when everything is going well, we think, well, it must be because I'm doing everything right. And God is very pleased with how I'm living my life, and and so I think I'm just great spiritually because everything is going well physically. The people of Jerusalem thought this way in the Old Testament. Under the reign of Jeroboam II, they were expanding their borders, they were doing well economically, they thought, we must be doing great spiritually, because look how well we're prospering. And they didn't recognize that the spiritual rot was setting in, their idolatry, their unfaithfulness to the Lord's covenant was going to lead to their destruction. And they were just looking at their present circumstance and saying, well, everything's good right now, so I must be doing well spiritually. And that's the way it is for us today. Christians, churches, Americans, we look around and say, well, look, we're at peace. No foreign armies invading. We've got money to buy things for Christmas. Our cars are working well. I'm insured. I must be doing really well. I must be pleasing to God. And then when bad things happen, we think the opposite. That is foolish thinking. Let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. It says there, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Beware and be on your guard against all forms of greed is what Jesus Christ says to his disciples. Back up a little bit. Look at what the scripture has to say about those who are rich in this present world. Actually, not back up. Forward to verse 17. That's the verse I had in mind. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. What's the danger of being rich? Well, you think you're better than other people. You think that you have deserved it. You think that you're making all the right decisions and you've done everything well and that's why you're successful and other people are not. Nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. If riches increase, the Bible says, do not set your heart upon them because they can vanish just like that. I lived in Florida for a number of years and before 2008 and the, the price of our house was going up, up, up. I was very happy. I was like, well, I'm not making much money, but at least our house has increased in value tremendously. And then, boom, the housing market crash comes along, and our house goes back down, and all that money just vanished away. That's the way wealth is. Don't set your heart on it. Don't set your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Rich in good works, take hold of that which is truly life. See this throughout scripture, this emphasis, this warning about the deceitfulness of riches, how we start to set our hope on it, how we start to confuse good times with good spiritual standing before God, and we must never make that mistake that the church in Laodicea was making. It caused them to become the lukewarm church. The lukewarm church is a church that is rich as far as the world goes, and yet poor in God's sight. Christ says to the church back in Revelation chapter 3, in contrast to your view that you are rich and have prospered and need nothing, According to my view, you don't know it, but I know it. You are wretched. You are pitiable. You are poor, blind, and naked. How many of the people in America, middle class, upper middle class, upper class, who think they're doing well, who think that God must be pretty pleased with them because they're healthy, they're happy, they've got what they want, they've achieved goals, how many of them, in the eyes of Christ, are wretched, and poor and miserable and blind and naked. See the world with Christ's eyes. That's what we need to learn to do. See ourselves with Christ's eyes first and foremost. What does it mean to be rich and yet poor? This word for wretched is used in Romans 7.24, where Paul describes the spiritual condition of a man apart from the power and grace of God's Holy Spirit work in us, that we are all wretched men, and that we must be set free from this body of death by the power of God's Holy Spirit. The flesh profits nothing. It is the Spirit that gives life, life indeed. And so without the Spirit of God filling us, we are all wretched In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 19, Paul uses this word pitiable, pitied, when he says, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. This is the opposite. See, if we have hope in Christ in this life only, well, then we're pretty miserable because if you follow Christ, you're going to be persecuted, you're going to be poor. And that's a pitiful condition. But if you compromise with the world, you can Look like you are doing well, but according to Christ, you're actually pitied. See, these who have nothing in this world would be pitied if there was no future life. But those who have everything in this world have nothing because they're not laying up treasure in the future life, in the coming of Jesus Christ. They're living for this life only. They are earth dwellers. And those are the ones who are truly pitiable. God turns things upside down. Come with me to Matthew chapter 5, verses 3-12. through 12. Now, the Bible doesn't say that you can't own a home or own a car or have insurance or a retirement account or any of those things. You can have those things. But the Bible says you can't set your hope on them. And the Bible says that you have to be generous and ready to share and be rich in good works. It's very important that your possessions do not possess you, but that you are possessed by Jesus Christ. Here in Matthew 5, we see this great contrast in the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Are you one of the blessed? Or are you like the Laodicean church? Also, you see here 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I told you, the Bible talks about this everywhere. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 through 13. This is particularly a New Testament doctrine. You see, I'm not going a lot to the Old Testament. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 through 13, you have this emphasis once again where Paul has to rebuke the church at Corinth. The church at Corinth is also a church that has a connotation for Spiritual problems, and their letters reveal that their church is probably very much like the Laodicean church. The Corinthian church and the Laodicean church seem to parallel one another, and you see that very strongly here in the words of the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 8. Already you have all you want, already you have become rich, without us you have become kings, and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Since the same Spirit, speaking through Paul, that is speaking in the book of Revelation, have an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Last week, the Ellis family was here. And what we just read is basically their life. Poor, persecuted, dishonored, misunderstood, beaten, rejected, and yet they're making many people rich. And you don't have to be a missionary to Africa in order to be able to live this kind of life. Just do the good works that God has put in front of you. Be the light in your family, in your neighborhood, at your workplace, at your school. Be the light in your church. Be the example of good works. That's all God is asking you to do. And if he brings more difficulty and more suffering as a result of that to test you in your resolve, then that's just an opportunity for you to show your love for God. That you're not doing this for an earthly reward, but you're doing it out of love for the Lord Jesus Christ and that nothing and no one can deter you from showing your love towards God in the way that he has asked you to. And then finally, finally, Back to Revelation, chapter 2, verse 9. The opposite church of the church in Laodicea, the church that receives no condemnation, but receives only commendation, the church in Smyrna, there Christ told that church, I know your tribulation, Revelation 2, 9, and your poverty, but you are rich. Here's one church that's rich, and yet they're poor. Here's another church that's poor, and yet they're rich. That is seeing things with the spiritual eyes that God gives to those who ask for it. Let's come back to Christ's counsel then in the book of Revelation chapter three. Christ's counsel is that we need to buy what cannot be bought. Look again at Revelation chapter three, verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. And white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Notice the last three in the list poor, blind, and naked at the end of verse 17. You see that? Poor, blind, and naked. Well, poverty is relieved by gold that you can get from Christ, blindness is healed by this eye salve so that you may see, and the nakedness is covered by the white garments. And where do we get these things? Where do we get the goods that can solve our spiritual problems? Only one source, only one outlet. Jesus has a monopoly on spiritual goods. And you got to go to his store. you got to go and stand in his line to get from him the things that only he is able to give. And that's why it says, buy from me. But when he says, buy from me, He's referring to an Old Testament prophet, Isaiah, chapter 55. Let's go back and take a look at Isaiah, chapter 55, verses 1 through 3. How do you buy things from Jesus Christ? I know how to buy things from Walmart. I know how to buy things from Amazon. How do I buy things from Jesus Christ? Come back to Isaiah 55. This passage is not only important here at the beginning of Revelation, but it also becomes very important at the end of Revelation. Jesus will refer back to this in, chapter tw- in the closing chapters. And Isaiah, shortly after the greatest prophecy in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 53, about the death of Christ for our sins and his eternal reward, his eternal glory, then comes this call to the whole world to receive the grace of God in Christ that has been described prophetically. And this is what it says. Isaiah 55, verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. See, the invitation goes out to those who are thirsty. And the problem with the Laodiceans was... They were not thirsty. They said, we've got everything we need. Just like when my kids come to me and ask me, what do you want for Christmas, Dad? And it's like, well, I have everything I need. I don't know. I just want you to get along with each other. (laughs) So in the same way, the spiritually self-satisfied, those who have become satisfied because of their position and status and wealth in society, they're not thirsty for the spiritual food and the spiritual drink. God invites everyone, but the only ones who come and take are those who want it, who recognize that they need it. You see, it's free, but you still have to come and buy it. It's kind of like when Menards has their rebate. You got to go to the store and buy it, and it takes time. You got to get in your car. You got to drive over there. You got to make out the schedule and your time and your day to actually go get it, and then you send in the rebate, and you end up getting it for free. But you still had to do something. And that's the way it is with receiving the spiritual goods that Jesus Christ has to offer to you. The grace of God, it cannot be earned. It cannot be bought the way we earn and buy everything else. But God has given us a heavenly rebate so that anyone who wants to, anyone who comes, can have it. But you got to come, and you got to receive. You have to ask. You have to value it that's all there's an opportunity cost that's involved in order to go to Christ in order to receive the spiritual riches that he has to give the opportunity cost is you're not going to go to the world you're not going to go to the flesh you're not going to go to the devil to get what he has to offer what they have to offer what your flesh craves but instead of going there you go to Christ. That's why it says in the next verse, verse 2, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? God sees everyone lined up at the store of the world, lined up at the store of the flesh, lined up at the store of the devil and trying to pay with their own works, with what they can do, with what they can accomplish for bread that doesn't satisfy. And God is calling out. To everyone who's standing in that line, saying, Why are you doing that? Come, receive the water of life freely and without cost. Instead of standing in that line, give up on that and go the other way. That's the counsel that Jesus Christ gives to the church in Laodicea. That's what it means to buy what cannot be bought. Now, continuing the text, let's take a look at the three things that we're supposed to buy from Christ. We're supposed to buy gold refined by fire, white garments, and number three, salve, to anoint your eyes. All right, so let's talk about the gold. This is the spiritual riches, the spiritual treasure. Come with me back to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 12. Oh, man, come on. I was afraid of this. This is such a rich passage. There's so much here that I don't want to just rush through it. And so we're going to take a break here, an unplanned for break. And this is where we'll be continuing on Christmas Eve next week. I plan to get to Revelation 4, but the Lord directs the steps. And this will be perfect for Christmas because we'll be learning about the gifts that God wants us to come to him to receive, to buy for ourselves, to buy for our families, to buy for our church, so that when we start opening our presents on Christmas Day, hopefully our minds keep away from the materialism of this age and instead on the spiritual treasures and the spiritual riches that God makes available to everyone who wants them. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your correction and your rebuke to churches that you love, who have grown lukewarm in their faith. Help us to properly evaluate our church, to see with your eyes, to be able to recognize where it is that we are hot, where it is that we are lukewarm. Father, we pray that you would protect us and guard us from a self-satisfaction and a self-deceit that is so repulsive in your sight. And Lord, may we also love Christians around us if they're in churches that are lukewarm, that do not have that burning love, that fervent hope, and that strong faith that is able to stand when it's tested, that we would reprove them and rebuke them with the same heart of love that we see in Jesus Christ. For the good of our neighbor and for our Christlikeness, and for your pleasure, do that work in our hearts. May we become more Christlike as a result of this time that we've spent listening to his words. Amen.